0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth.
1: Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. It's a a bit of a brave new world out there right now. Official interest rates in Australia are now 1% and economists, including those at NAB, are predicting further cuts, uh, probably this year in fact. And while the rest of the world tumbled into recession during the GFC, central banks had to resort to quite extraordinary measures to keep their economies afloat. Australia rather sailed through the last decade with a very healthy economy, reasonable growth, uh, and reasonable returns for savers and investors alike. Uh, Certainly property investors have had a nice time until recently. So what does that mean for the next 10 years however? We have to assume they're going to look very different and there are very real implications for investors Today, I'm joined by Anthony Doyle from Fidelity, who is a global cross-asset investment specialist. I love saying that, which means he speaks about equities, fixed income and more uh, across markets around the world. Anthony has worked around the world during many of the more interesting moments in markets over the last decade and more, and he has a very real perspective on how lower rates are going to affect Australia or are likely to affect Australia and Australian investors in the coming years. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Gemma.
0: Thanks for inviting me on.
1: No worries. So the world of 1% rates, this is uh, really different for us in Australia. Cash rates are negative after inflation. They are very much negative after tax and inflation are taken into consideration. Many regions around the world have had to get used to that. But in Australia, we've, we've had nothing like that in our history. How does the Australian experience of the last 12 years compare to the other major developed economies that you've been working in, not just experiencing? Yeah,
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, the Australian experience has been exceptional, has been excellent relative to countries like the US, the UK, Europe, Japan. So for a bit of context, I recently returned to Australia about a year ago now, three young kids in tow. and uh, the grandparents are obviously very happy about that (laughs) Uh, but you can hear i'm I'm australian so i spent uh, five years at macquarie 2002 to 2007 as a economist on the bond and currency desk there and then uh, i ended up in dublin for a couple of years during the gfc Mm -hmm. very very interesting time i sort of got the real tale of the celtic tiger Uh, Mm. And then obviously uh, the GFC where Ireland was almost like a, it was a depression. Mm. Uh, There was dark days there where we were worried about whether cash was going to come out of ATMs and things like that. And uh, obviously the Irish government had to step in and secure its banking system. Otherwise it was going down the gurgler.
1: If you'd like a funny perspective on that, by the way, if you would, uh, Tommy Tiernan, the comedian who is Irish quite obviously, tells a very funny story about being a, a property investor in Ireland uh, during that period, about how everyone owned four houses until they didn't. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. It's quite entertaining.
0: Yeah, knowing uh, Tommy Tin and shows, I wouldn't uh, put that on for the kids, though, obviously. So.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's, a, yeah. that's an adult, uh, very much an adult... Uh, <laughs> Adults-only,
0: I'd say. Adults-only
1: yeah. experience of the GFC with lots of laughs. Yeah,
0: exactly. So um, I was there until basically the height of the financial crisis. So I joined a firm in London, uh, one of the UK's largest investment management firms, in around June 2009. Uh, the reason I left Ireland was I had found love. Uh, and oh, you know, right, okay. Married uh, the girl who had moved to Dublin uh, with me, mm. and uh, she obviously couldn't get work on an on Aussie tourist visa. I have an Irish passport. Oh. So I was I was fine. Mm. But uh, my wife, uh, she had a job in London she could go to. And I thought there was a better chance, even though it was the GFC and, and really a lot of uncertainty in, in financial markets at that stage, there was a better chance of me getting a role in London than uh, my wife getting a role in Dublin in uh, the telco sector. So uh, I joined a firm that had had a fantastic financial crisis and I joined a... <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: it's not a term you hear every day, they had a fantastic financial crisis. Brilliant, absolutely
0: brilliant financial crisis. So I joined a bond and currency desk there and uh, the, there was uh, 14 funds there uh, mm-hmm. in the fixed income space, uh, global fixed income, so government bonds, investment grade, high yield, emerging market debt, and uh, one of the funds there grew to Europe's largest bond fund and at one stage was around about 35 billion US dollars. So, fantastic experience that I had in London um, but that's where I saw the European debt crisis, uh, the uncertainty around the US elections, Mm. the taper tantrum uh, with Ben Bernanke, obviously Brexit uh, Mm. and the referendum (laughs) results so all these events have kind of followed me around my career so I'm hoping I'm not the the kiss of death for the Aussie economy as well having returned now.
1: (laughs) like you happen to be on the ground whenever all the crazy stuff's happening. So Australia's had this sort of extraordinary period of economic growth. Right? It's unprecedented in history, not Australian history, in global history, this uh, expansion that has continued from an economic perspective. But there's the market experience which is different. So we've had relatively low rates for a long time. Now we have extraordinarily low rates, again, historically unprecedented in Australia, but nowhere near as low as rates have either gotten in the US or are in Europe and some of the other economies. Can you talk us through what happened in those economies, how rates got so low, and what the other extraordinary measures were that central banks took? Because this term quantitative easing is thrown around. Certainly when I was studying economics and markets, it wasn't a term I'd ever heard, right? This is really foreign concept for most people, and yet now it is taken as almost a, a necessary feature of monetary policy, uh, having been brought about in a crisis, but still around, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the context is, obviously, during the GFC, Ben Bernanke was at the helm of the US Federal Reserve, and Ben Bernanke had spent his entire academic career focused on the US depression of the 1930s and how monetary policy settings had perhaps exacerbated the depression, that basically uh, the US Fed had done the wrong thing. Mm. So quantitative easing, you know, he'd done a very famous speech for which he got his nickname, Helicopter Ben, before the GFC, where he said, you know, if things got bad enough, we could essentially print money and that's where he got his nickname Helicopter Ben. Perhaps unfairly, Mm. um, but he really uh, led the Fed through the GFC and they realized very quickly that the issues within the uh, global financial system, it was a liquidity crisis. So how are they going to address that? Uh, They had to produce reserves at the US Federal Reserve that banks could use in order to restore their balance sheets, but equally get credit flying throughout the US economy again. So what happened was the Fed quickly reduced interest rates and then you heard about the TARP, um, the the asset purchase program, quantitative easing, and this has really become a tool in central bank policy makers arsenal that they can use when interest rates approach the the level of 0% like they are in in Australia at the moment. You know, they're they're currently at one. Mm. Many expect there's another 25 basis points priced into the forwards curve now by the end of the year, and many expect it could get to half a percent. So Australia, by global standards, we have a very low interest rate. We've got the eighth lowest interest rate in the world now. Uh, Another 50 basis points is a material easing in the RBA cash rate, Um, but this is where you're starting to get some... Question marks about we can't cut interest rates any further.
1: Yeah, there's a natural flaw there, right? Yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> there is, but you know, interest rates can go lower and they can go negative. So we had the European Central Bank last night saying yeah. they're going to cut re- interest rates essentially in September to negative levels, even yeah. further negative. Um,
1: can you explain what negative levels mean for people? Because well, that's quite yeah. an interesting concept, right? Yeah,
0: of course. I mean, I you mean, have to pay
1: me to hold your money.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, Uh, Today, there's uh, around $13 trillion, US dollars, worth of debt that trades with a negative yield. Uh, So basically, this is like you going to the bank and Mm. saying, I want a mortgage, Mm. and the bank saying, you can have a mortgage, and I'm going to pay you to take the mortgage as well, Mm. and go and spend it. Um, So international investors, particularly in bond markets, are now paying governments for the safety of owning the debt that they issue, which is perverse, it's having weird and unusual, uh, you know, uh, outcomes within financial markets. Uh, But equally, what central banks are doing in easing monetary policy is they want to lighten the debt burden on businesses and households. So they reduce interest payments, and they try and encourage entrepreneurial spirit consumption Mm. in order to try and generate higher economic growth outcomes and then inflation.
1: So I'm going a little bit off track here, but I do, I find this really fascinating. So if the plan is to foster an entrepreneurial spirit, there's actually really good data that says there are far fewer business starts now than there were two decades ago. Because people don't start businesses with this easy money, they go and buy assets instead. Uh, In Australia, they buy houses. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. what we buy. We love houses and that's what we're going to keep buying. I was a question I was going to ask you later, but I'll ask you now. So coming back to Australia, what's it like walking into the Sydney property market and going, wow, you guys are gone silly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's if you think about how house prices have risen over the last 30 years, on any measure, they're expensive, um, particularly mm. in the global context, but there are some long-term structural themes that I think get glossed over. Mm so one is you know 30 years ago for example you had much less participation by females in the workforce
1: mm. oh yeah dual incomes it's had a so big you've impact. Got dual
0: incomes households have become wealthier they can borrow more interest that structural decline in interest rates that have um, many have experienced over the last 30 years it's just increased the borrowing power and the borrowing capacity of Australian households mm. but equally this sort of demographic growth that Australia experienced with a growing population, the reverse of the issues that a country like Japan or Germany faces or the UK for example where population growth is actually starting to turn negative um, this has been you know, there's only so much land in Australia particularly where people want to live and there's so much stock of housing uh, and arguably our housing stock isn't reflective of you know, the types of dwellings that we need to support this higher population. You know, we're getting there in terms mm. of new builds of apartments, etc. But don't forget, like since the 1950s, terraced housing had been banned in Sydney uh, up until I think about a decade ago um, for fear of promoting slums and, and you know, that type <laughs> of thing. So, mm. I mean, the reason that house prices here are elevated for me are a, mm. a combination of those structural themes, you know, mm. rising... Uh, population growth, uh, the, the increase in household uh, balance sheets, falling interest rates, banks being able to lend more, but equally Australia is a great place to live. Yeah, um, yeah. it's so very people, desirable. People want to move, I mean the lifestyle is fantastic and everyone wants to live you know essentially as close to the CBD or the harbour in Sydney as they mm. can or or Melbourne you know wherever the case may be where a, a coastal society um, so that's why house prices have risen to the extent that they are. So I wouldn't argue that that on a global scale, Aussie housing perhaps gets an unfair rap for being uh, particularly expensive, given some of those factors that are at play here.
1: So it's a good perspective. It's an interesting perspective. and The reason I raise it is saying uh, central banks are lowering rates to ease the debt burden. Um, or it's more to ease the interest burden, really. It's not the debt burden because what's happening is everyone's massively increasing their debt <laughs> in Australia. Anyway, that's been our response to lower interest rates: is to just borrow more, right? To buy passive assets in case of housing. There's not been a huge change in terms of greater starts of new businesses and so on. NAB's got incredibly good data on business banking. Uh, business bank, right? So we see a lot of data on that. We haven't seen it, like a real flow-on effect in that case, which is quite interesting. You made some comments about how these really low rates have perverse outcomes for markets. Can you expand a bit more on that?
0: Sure. So if you go on to a central bank's website, the way that they'll articulate quantitative easing is that it's a way to promote higher inflation, because they're really worried about disinflation and deflation today, and the RBA is as well, they'll articulate this uh, phenomenon called the portfolio rebalancing effect, uh, which is a bit of jargon, but essentially it means you look at your portfolio, there's a bit of cash, there's a bit of fixed income, there's a bit of equities. It essentially encourages investors to move out the risk spectrum in the... Hope of generating higher returns, um, and again encouraging that sort of innovation, entrepreneurial uh, spirit within an economy, but equally driving consumption, I because if the portfolio is rising in value, then you're more wealthy, mm-hmm. and you're more inclined to maybe have a nice meal, or buy some goods, or buy a new car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So essentially, you know, to get back to what quantitative easing actually is. They'll say we're gonna uh, you know, buy 100 billion worth of government bonds, maybe corporate bonds. Normally pension funds, superannuation funds you know, globally and insurance companies will see what bonds the central bank want to buy. Mm. They'll sell those bonds to the central bank. The central bank will give them money mm-hmm. in return which goes on deposit with a bank. The bank then has higher deposits, they can then lend more freely, so it promotes uh, the credit, promotes the lifeblood of an economy, which is is credit, uh, essentially, and encourages people, as I said, have, if they have freer access to credit, they could start a new business, or they can make um, a new car purchase through a car loan, or they buy a new house. And subsequently, unemployment starts to fall, people are hiring, wages start to go up, inflation starts to go up. So. It's a long... This is, again, because they can't cut rates any further than they already have, they're using this new tool, and they have done since the GFC, in order to promote an a, um, improving economy. Now, the problem, the real big problem is that it's an experiment. Mm, no yeah. one really knows. Any central banker that says they know what the impacts of quantitative easing are are, you know, are telling porcupines, because that's... <laughs> it's not Mm. true. Mm. So an analysis, you know, people are trying to get a handle, academics, economists, trying to get a handle on what perverse outcomes, quantitative easing, and excess global liquidity are causing. And one is it really inflates asset prices. And the people that have assets are generally wealthier people. So the big question mark now is, Is the form of quantitative easing that central banks have been pursuing appropriate given that it largely inflates assets like houses, fine wine, Mm. paintings, equities, the fixed income market, you Mm. know, 13 trillion of debt with a negative yield, for example? Mm. Or is it more appropriate to perhaps pursue something that Kevin Rudd's government did during the GFC, which is essentially people's QE? Yeah, fiscal um, policy. Exactly, yeah. um, fiscal policy, tax breaks, that type of thing, making... So hopefully, if you get more money into the average person mm. on the street, that they'll actually spend it. So that, in that way, you have a, a real consumption multiplier effect.
1: There's a real call. Uh, Philip Lowe could not be more explicit if he tied about his request for government to be more aggressive on their use of fiscal policy like tax cuts are great but we need to do other stuff and calls for increases in new start allowance and all those sorts of things are sort of getting louder and louder not just from uh people on the social services side but from people going it's actually quite an important economic uh contributor at this point when we we feel like we need them you were talking about disinflation and um i covered it in podcast probably over a year ago and there would have been people who missed that so it's worth tweeting about why central banks are so concerned about it. Why is it something that scares people so much?
0: Essentially, the big problem with deflation, disinflation, Mm. it's great if you're a consumer Mm. and uh, you're buying goods and Mm. services, but essentially what happens is if I want to go out and buy a car today for 10 grand, but I think it's going to be worth 9 grand in a year's time, I hold on to my cash Mm -hmm. and I wait for that... um, price to come down in a year's time. And then if I continue to think that deflation is a feature of the economy, Mm. well, I might not spend at all until I think that prices have hit rock bottom and I think that perhaps inflation will start to return into the system. And if you get, I mean, Australia's GDP is 60% consumption. If you get people retrenching on buying things because they think items of goods, of services are gonna get cheaper in the future, the economy just crashes and you just have a recession. Unemployment rises, You know this is the type of environment that central banks and policy makers seek to avoid, which is why they have these inflation targets of, for the, for the RBA, two to 3%, which uh, Governor Lowe came out and defended uh, as recently as, as uh, Tuesday, a, a speech he did on inflation targeting, because there's a debate going on in international economics at the moment Well, central banks are having a lot of difficulty meeting their inflation targets. Is it appropriate how high they are? Two is just an arbitrary number that Mm. was just pulled out of the air. And the RBNZ, the New Zealand Reserve Bank, were the first to do inflation targeting back in 1993. And uh, so there's a debate, should they make it lower? Should they make it higher? Are they targeting the right thing at all? Uh, And what we saw post the GFC was uh, central banks like the US Fed, the Bank of England, The ECB, they started to become a lot more focused on the labour market than historically they have been. So they became a lot more focused on driving down the unemployment rate Mm. as opposed to targeting inflation. Uh, So the UK had inflation of around 5% in 2010, but the Bank of England kept saying it's only because of oil prices, it's only because sterling had fallen we're not hiking rates until labor labor market outcomes improve and you start to see unemployment fall. So Mark Carney was the new governor of the Bank of England. He came in and he said, we're not gonna hike interest rates until unemployment falls to this level. We're not gonna hike interest rates until we think inflation is gonna be at least half a percent above our target. And we're not gonna hike in interest rates unless we think financial instability is occurring within the economy. So there's some of the tools that they use and they they use this it's called forward guidance so Mm. they they tell us Mm. in order so we have some certainty in terms of our future plans and our future spending and just to to sum off that that train of thought in terms of deflation for an economy like australia where there's a high level of household debt Mm. in real terms deflation that debt's becoming larger and larger and larger Mm. so that again impacts household balance sheets because the debt That they've accumulated keeps on growing and growing and growing. You know, ideally, what you want as a borrower is higher inflation because it erodes the real value of that debt,
1: and you feel richer, which is always helpful. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, complex world. As I said, not. We're heading into an environment potentially because a year ago we were all thinking rates were, going, rates were going higher, not lower. So always very important to caveat these things. Um, the NAV economics team had a, uh, had a forward guidance of two rate increases last year. So things do change and they can change quite quickly. But should Australia head into the environment that particularly the Eurozone and Japan have been into, where low rates are a fact, right? The US has been able to hike rates to an extent stop now but yeah they they're will, coming back yeah yeah so but they've been able to increase rates which is not something that has been really tolerated in some of the other major economies what does it mean for investors what should people be thinking about when they're facing into this environment that we just have not seen before
0: yeah I mean the way you can approach asset valuations is sort of three streams of analysis one are the fundamentals so the macroeconomic environment that you're describing there. One is the technical. So where are the flow of funds going? You know, is money cheap or is it expensive? And then the final sort of of lens is valuations. So is something cheap, expensive, fair value? And where do you think it's going to go in the future? So, I mean, what I find difficult in terms of the Australian context is when we talk about economies like Japan, the US, Europe, these economies are massive, right? So the US is second largest in the world behind China. Europe's obviously one of the largest economies in the world, and Japan's you know, top five, I think. Australia, I think we're, we're 21st largest economy in the world. We're a small, open economy. We're very much dependent upon global factors. Uh, so the type of environment you're, you're talking about, I feel is unlikely to occur in terms of Australia. As I said, we've got population growth, that's important. Um, we are very rich in minerals and resources. That's important. We're much more geared into the emerging market uh, growth story than, say, uh, a Europe or a US, for example. That's important. You know, we're almost fortuitously lucky. Um, the the big forces that have supported the Australian economy in this 34-year growth expansion, they're going to continue for the next 50, 100 years, the next century or even this century, is the century of emerging markets. And, and emerging markets, the International Monetary Fund expect growth to be around 6% for the foreseeable future. Whereas in uh, the developed world, they expect around 2%. And emerging markets are driving global growth today. They're the largest share of global growth today. And that's likely to continue going forward. But in this world where Australia has the eighth lowest interest rates, you know we are a, a very rich country. We have low interest rates, we have high household debt. Uh, As you mentioned uh, to begin with, having your money in cash isn't good enough Mm -hmm. to protect your standard of living because uh, inflation today is 1.3% as measured by the CPI, the uh, Consumer Price Index. But uh, I recently did a piece of analysis where the costs of the things that we need like paying school fees or housing or food or utilities is growing at a much faster rate than the things we want, like cars and computers and electronics, for example. So if you want to maintain your standard of living, that portfolio rebalancing effect really comes back into play. So you have to think about, my money is getting nothing on deposit with the bank, uh, nothing in terms of term deposits, you know, the, the yields on term deposits are getting lower and lower with each interest rate cut what are alternative or other asset classes I can look to where I accept a bit more risk, but uh, I have the potential of earning higher returns going forward. So in order to pursue that uh, positive real return on your portfolio, you have to think about, right, I've got to move some of this cash, which once upon a time earned 6.5% in a savings account. Well, it's nothing now. Where can I look in order to generate an above inflation return?
1: So I think you're absolutely right, and we certainly see that from investors. We get that question uh, all the time about looking for uh, greater potential returns in this environment, moving up the risk spectrum without taking on significantly greater risk. But certainly many Australian investors are very comfortable with taking equity risk in order to get a dividend yield and a franking credit. Uh, That's something that Australian investors are 100% okay with. It's astonishing how many of them cheat Bank shares in particular, like a, just a slightly volatile term deposit. Yeah. Um, just yeah. take the yield, that's nice. And it's a much better yield than a term deposit, so they're reasonably happy. Hybrids are in sort of a, a slightly less risky category. Are there issues that you think Australian investors need to consider? So they understand the benefits of Australian equities in this environment. They understand the value of uh, hybrids and, and various other sort of fixed income-like Uh, assets that give them a good yield which is particularly relevant for retirees obviously for investors who've got higher risk tolerance this issue of home bias because we do see people happy to move up the risk spectrum but only in Australian assets
0: yeah
1: how do they face into a new world
0: I mean I think it's important that they look at the the opportunity set that's available to them so you know it's a big Bad world out there, uh, <laughs> it's bad, isn't and uh, no, it's a good world, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, generally, uh, I'm I'm really optimistic about the outlook because you know, if you think about the the 20th century and all the really bad things that happened, like the depression or a couple of world wars or uh, hyperin not hyperinflation, but you know, the oil price shock in the 70s, uh, the recession that we had here in 91, you know humans and and the human race continue to uh invent and and come up with ingenious ways of solving problems and and that's in a way what capitalism incentivizes uh to some extent but equally uh if you think about the way that the globe has reduced poverty and some of the the un development goals and and we've made great strides towards that you know Almost uh, the reduction in terms of malaria in the emerging world, or literacy rates, or you know, uh, women having better outcomes all over the globe. I think these are ultimately positive stories, and we can dwell as analysts or economists or the media on the negatives because, as humans, that's how we were. That's how we evolved. You know thinking of what's around the corner, what can bite me. And if you're in Australia, you know, you're thinking about where's the red back or <laughs> that type of thing. Underneath
1: but, your kid's car seat,
0: probably. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, to, to be optimistic. And um, as Australians, you know, we've got this home bias. That's, that's consistent in investment markets all over the world you know the brits like british because you're you're british equities us like US. you're more familiar with these brands that you know and love but equally
1: i am told by the way i'm interrupting i apologize that the dutch don't have this problem apparently the dutch only hold one percent of their assets in dutch companies which is hilarious given how huge some of their companies are right yeah royal dutch shell it's um, ing you know they've got these (laughs) mega companies and they're like no We're just going to go offshore or outside our own borders. So unless you're Dutch.
0: That's the benefit of being European as well, you Mm. know, so you've got that euro stock exchange. But um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity globally, both in developed markets and emerging markets. And uh, for a little bit of research uh, and, you know, the assistance of potentially a a professional portfolio manager, some of these uh, outcomes higher return outcomes that investors seek in a low return world are achievable uh, by looking at in unfamiliar territory than they've perhaps been used to over the course of the last 30 years.
1: So where are you guys? You guys are all over the world, right? Fidelity is enormous and you have incredible reach, which is, it's nice to have, right? Um, Where are you guys looking for opportunity explicitly? You see what is happening in each economy, you see what's happening in each market and go, right, I can see what the fundamentals look like, I can see where the flows are going, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, these macro issues that we're we're looking to in Australia for the first time, fine, you've seen that in other places. Where are you guys looking? Um, Where do you think things look coolest and most interesting?
0: Well, uh, so we have a, a global asset allocation Committee that looks at all asset classes, all regions, uh, and uh, you know I participate in those meetings as well from from Sydney in mm-hmm. the London time zone, so that's a, a lot of fun. Um, but you know we look we look globally as you say. We've got a lot of uh, a lot of resource. Uh, we've got offices in in Hong Kong and London and. 120 portfolio managers, 120 equity analysts, 16,000 meetings a year with company management, all this type of thing and we can really tap into that extreme amount of research that's being produced constantly for us. Um, so from a top-down asset allocation perspective, you know we really like emerging markets for the structural long-term structural themes. You know if you look at patent um, applications, It's sort of an exponential growth curve relative to the developed markets, which are really flatlined. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I mean the the outcomes of uh, people being connected to the internet. So you have billions of people that have access to education and are informing themselves about uh, you know different areas, different topics, different subject matters. Um, You've had structural change within the emerging markets in terms of their institutions and inflation has come down and a little bit more stable than they've historically been. You've got fantastic demographics. Uh, So as opposed to the developed world where you're going to have a large cohort of people that are unproductive, retired but unproductive. <laughs> uh, you have apologies uh, to all the retired
1: and, people who are listening. Yep. Yeah, well no,
0: I think you want to be unproductive when you're retired and relax. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, sit on the beach and, mm. and, and enjoy your retirement. So uh, yeah the emerging world have this workforce coming through that uh, are earning more money, population growth that's where all the GDP growth will come from. So you have these very long term demographic tailwinds that are going to propel growth in the emerging world and thus better outcomes for companies within those regions that tap into those markets, tap into those consumer markets, for example. But equally, in terms of the short term, next 12 to 18 months, some of the headwinds that emerging markets experienced last year have reversed to some extent uh, this year. So a rising dollar uh, is makes it difficult for emerging markets to perform, that's reversed, particularly given uh, many expect the Fed to cut rates later this month and potentially more, do more by the end of the year, so that's gone. Concerns around contagion in emerging markets with China potentially slowing, that's reversed in terms of the sentiment around emerging market asset classes. Uh, obviously there's question marks around the trade war, that sort of uh, come off the the consciousness of the average investor and uh, with the reduction in news flow and the sort of agreement at G20, that's obviously not uh, been reconciled and probably won't be. But equally, uh, that's one one headwind that's uh, sort of abated to some extent. So there are some bullish signs uh, for emerging market equities and in particular, EM Asia over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. But, you know... I would argue for a structural allocation to emerging markets, not just a tactical one. Uh, I think that uh, it has extreme benefits, an excellent benefit within a diversified portfolio of assets, you know, a bit of cash, Aussie equities, fixed income, global fixed income. I think it makes a lot of sense.
1: Which, so just to be explicit for people who are listening, which markets are you talking about uh, as it relates to emerging markets? Because one thing that's really important about this is Uh, some some emerging markets have well-regulated, efficient stock markets that are easy to invest in and some don't. Uh, And however much you may wish to invest in some of these areas, how you get access to them is quite important. Um, So which countries are you looking at specifically? You're saying Asia uh, as a point. Um, So countries and, and markets specifically that you guys are most keen on.
0: Yeah, so again... When I talk about the fantastic environment of emerging markets, I think it's important that it's not passive a passive investment. Mm. I, I absolutely think that, that index funds and passive funds have a place within a diversified portfolio of assets for investors. I mm. think it makes a lot of sense to have an S&P 500 index fund, Fidelity in the US, zero fees, right? Yeah. So. I think that makes a lot of sense the, the universe is so well covered and so well researched and it'd be very unusual to have any sort of esg issues as well mm-hmm. you know governance issues or, or that type of thing whereas emerging markets is still very much these are, are front and foremost of investors minds particularly us so i think an active approach makes a lot more sense within this region uh that you have people conducting this research that you have people looking at the balance sheets, that you have people looking at who the auditor of the balance sheets are, that you have people meeting company management and understanding the ESG considerations around many of these companies. Uh, So I think that an active approach to emerging markets as perhaps a satellite within a, a portfolio makes a lot of sense. So in terms of the sort of regions that we favor. I mentioned EM Asia in mm-hmm. particular. You know, we really like China. So we have a, a team in Shanghai. We have a team in, in Hong Kong uh, as well, of analysts uh, and some in Singapore that are meeting with companies regularly and, and understanding the dynamics within within China. Uh, and of course, Chinese companies are, are onshore also listed on the, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. India mm-hmm. is a fantastic opportunity for, for investors. Uh, India may be the one Region that Aussies miss over the next decade potentially. So
1: this is a disclaimer, and I mentioned it to you before the podcast. So I hold the Fidelity India Fund in my self-managed super fund. Um, Not missing India, not missing it. I mean, you know, (laughs) have uh, held it for a while. You know, the the
0: government Modi's obviously been re-elected, and has been pursuing economic reforms, and will continue to do so. The Indian stock exchange is bigger than the German stock exchange, for example. Uh, but it's difficult to access Um, so we have a team in Mumbai uh, and research analysts and our head of research here in Sydney uh, manages that team and uh, so we have a portfolio manager that runs the fund out of Hong Kong and a portfolio advisor based in India um, that again are looking at the opportunities on the Indian Stock Exchange and uh, obviously communication builds conviction within these uh, regions and these areas so the ideas that these teams develop, not only is it relevant for the India mm. fund, but it's relevant for the Global Emerging Markets fund, or, or mm. you know, the Fidelity Asia fund, for example. So, it can, a, a good idea can find its way into multiple funds within within our remit, uh, or that we um, provide to to investors.
1: So, you were talking about governance issues, and um, so this is just will prove to everyone just how boring I am um, I have three books that I've sort of read and uh, or am currently reading uh, one is Ben Bernanke's memoir uh, relating to the uh, to the crisis which is. It's pretty dense, right? It's very long. It's very Gemma. dense. Yeah, I know. It's, it's not very Gemma. exciting. But if you want one that's a bit more of a wild ride, that gives you an idea of some of the governance issues you might be looking at if you were looking at emerging markets, there's a book called Billion Dollar Whale, which relates to the uh, 1MDB scandal in Malaysia, which was... Uh, effectively the sovereign wealth fund that was established in Malaysia and turned out to be an enormous fraud multi-billion dollar fraud and there's a bit about Miranda Kerr in there if you want a bit of kind of glamour uh, there's a lot of they funded the Wolf of Wall Street film out of that uh, oh, right. out of that okay. fund it's quite extraordinary this yeah. the guy was buying fine art he was uh, buying uh, he was investing in Hollywood films all that kind of stuff so it's, it's kind of a sexy story as well as a really boring finance story you can get the whole the whole gamut yeah, of true. it it's an extraordinary extraordinary book if you want to know why governance matters because these guys were uh, financed and or uh, getting funding through paying money to some of the biggest investment firms in the world so they were not like a little nothing yeah Uh, Goldman Sachs was heavily involved many other firms that you would consider to be uh, blue chip, blue yeah, ribbon, yeah. Uh, were involved. So governance matters, right? It really, really matters. All of the money that was invested in that is now gone.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you you can't just blindly invest in these mm. markets. You have to do your homework. And it starts with governance uh, for us. And we put a, a huge amount of focus on ESG. Our analysts uh, rate right, every single company on ESG metrics. Uh, so we have a great understanding of how the portfolio uh, knits in together, and uh, you know, if we don't, if we don't believe uh, in the ESG credentials of a company, we, well, we won't, we won't invest in it. Um, and because you know, we put a big emphasis on trying to limit any capital downside and and protecting investors' capital.
1: So, Anthony, you guys. Are- You have people all over the world producing the kind of insights into the different things we've been talking about. We've talked about a lot of stuff today, actually, but where can people go to keep up to date with what you guys are talking about all over the world and all the interesting insights that they produce?
0: Yeah, I mean, we put a a huge emphasis on transparency, so I mean, we want our clients to to see our research, well, see the the most interesting research, so we publish it on uh, Mm -hmm. fidelity.com.au, so You know, I I put a bit of research up there that I produce and things like that. Um, But equally, you know, if they are interested in our products, we've got them on M funds with Mm -hmm. the stock exchange. Uh, We've got uh, unlisted uh, unit trusts, which you can uh, have a look at on the website. And and then you can uh, look at an active ETF um, with the ticker FEMX, which is also on the ASX. That's a global emerging markets fund.
1: Anthony Doyle from Fidelity. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you also so much for listening. As always, we hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, we do love to hear from you. So please just email us at yourwealth@nav.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.